0: Part One, Chapter Nine of Australia Felix. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Australia Felix by Henry Handel Richardson. Part One, Chapter Nine. He sawed, planed, hammered. Curly shavings dropped, and there was a pleasant smell of sawdust. Much had to be done to make the place fit to receive Polly. A second outhouse was necessary to hold the surplus goods and do duty as a sleeping room for Long Jim and Hempel. The lean-to the pair had occupied until now was being converted into a kitchen. At great cost and trouble Mahony had some trees felt and brought in from Warrenheap. With them he put up a rude fence around his back yard, interlacing the lopped boughs from post to post, so that they formed a thick and leafy screen. He also filled in the disused shaft that had served as a rubbish-hole, and chose another further off, which would be less malodorous in the summer heat. Finally, a substantial load of firewood carted in and two snakes that had made the journey in hollow logs dispatched, Long Jim was sent down to chop and split the wood into a neat pile. Polly would need but to walk to and from the woodstack for her firing. Indoors he made equal revolution. That her ears should not be polluted by the language of the customers, he ran up a partition between living room and store, thus cutting off the slab-walled portion of the house, with its roof of stringy bark, from the log and canvas front. He also stopped with putty the worst gaps between the slabs. At Ocock's auction-rooms he bought a horsehair sofa to match his armchair, a strip of carpet, a bed, a washhand stand, and a looking-glass, and tacked up a calico-curtain before the window. His books, fetched out of the wooden case, were arranged on a brand-new set of shelves, and when all was done and he stood back to admire his work, it was borne in on him afresh with how few creature-comforts he had hitherto existed. Plain to see now why he had preferred to sit out of doors rather than within. Now no one on the flat had a trimmer little place than he. In his labours he had the help of a friendly digger, a carpenter by trade, who one evening, pipe in mouth, had stood to watch his amateurish efforts with the jack plane. Otherwise the lord alone knew how the house would ever have been made shipshape. Long Jim was equal to none but the simplest jobs, and Hempel, the assistant, had his hands full with the store. "'Well, it was a blessing at this juncture that business could be left to him. Hempel was as straight as a die, was a real treasure, or would have been, were it "'not for his eternal little bark of a cough. "'This was proof against all remedies, and the heck-heck of it at night was quite enough "'to spoil a light sleeper's rest. "'In building the new shed, Mahony had been careful to choose a corner far from the house. "'Marriages were still uncommon enough on Ballarat to make him an object of considerable "'curiosity.' People took to dropping in of an evening, old Ocock, the postmaster, a fellow storekeeper, ex steward to the Duke of Newcastle, to comment on his alterations and improvements, and over a pipe and a glass of sherry he had to put up with a good deal of banter about his approaching change of state. Still it was kindly meant. We'll have to git up a bit of company for nights for your lady when she comes, said old Ocock, and spat under the table. Purdy rode from Tarangower where he had drifted. "'Hurray, old Dick. Golly for you. Old man, didn't I kick up a bobbery when I heard the news? Never was so well pleased in my life. That's all you needed, Dick. Now you'll turn into a first rate colonial. How about that five an hour I'd like to know? You can tell Polly from me I shall pay it back with interest on the fatal day. "'Of course I'll come and see you spliced, togs or no togs. "'To tell the truth, my kicksies are on their very last legs, "'and there's nothing doing here. "'All the loose stuff's been turned over. "'There's oceans of quartz, of course, "'and they're trying to pound it up in dollies, "'but you could put me to bed with a pickaxe and a shovel "'before I'd go in for such tomfoolery as that. "'Damn it, all, Dick, to think of you being cotched at last. "'I can't get over it, and it's a bit of a risk too, by dad it is, "'for a girl of that age is a dark horse if ever there was one.' "'Marnie's answer to this was a couple of pound-notes, "'so that my best man shall not disgrace me.' "'His heart went out to the writer. "'Dear old Dicky bird pleased as punch at the turn of events, "'yet quaking for fear of imaginary risks. "'With all Purdy's respect for his friend's opinions, "'he had yet an odd distrust of that friend's ability "'to look after himself. "'And now he was presuming to doubt Polly, too, "'like his imperance. "'What the Dickens did he know of Polly?' Keenly relishing the sense of his own intimate knowledge, Mahony touched the breast-pocket in which Polly's letters lay. He often carried them out with him to a little hill on which a single old bluegum had been left standing, its scraggy topknot of leaves drooped and swayed in the wind like the few long straggling hairs on an old man's head. The letters formed a goodly bundle, for Polly and he wrote regularly to each other. She once a week, he twice— His bore the Queen's head, hers as befitted a needy little governess, were oftenest delivered by hand. Marnie untied the packet, drew a chance letter from it, and mused as he read. Polly had still not ceded much of her early reserve, and it had taken him weeks to persuade her even to call him by his first name. She was, he thanked goodness, not of the kind who threw maidenly modesty to the winds directly the binding word is spoken. He loved her all the better for her wariness of emotion— it tallied with a like streak in his own nature. And this, though at the moment he was going through a very debauch of frankness. To the little black-eyed girl who pored over his letters at Beamish's family hotel, he unbosomed himself as never in his life before. He enlarged on his tastes and preferences, his likes and dislikes, he gave vent to his real feelings for the country of his exile and his longings for home— told how he had come to the colony in the first instance with the fantastic notion of redeeming the fortunes of his family, described his collections of butterflies and plants to her using their Latin names, and Polly drank in his words and humbly agreed with all he wrote, or at least did not disagree, and from this, as have done lovers from the beginning of time, he inferred a perfect harmony of mind. On one point only did he press her for a reply— Was she fond of books? If so, what evenings they would spend together, he reading aloud from some entertaining volume, she at her fancy work. And poetry? For himself he could truly say he did not care for poetry, except on a Saturday night or a quiet Sunday morning, and that was because he liked it too well to approach it with any but a tranquil mind. I think if I know you are right, as I believe I do, my Polly, you too have poetry in your soul.' He smiled at her reply, then kissed it. "'I cannot write poetry myself,' said Polly, "'but I am very fond of it, and shall indeed like very much, dear Richard, to listen when you read.' But the winter ran away, one cold, wet week succeeding another, and still they were apart. Mahony urged and pleaded, but couldn't get Polly to name the wedding day. He began to think pressure was being brought to bear on the girl from another side— Naturally, the Beamishes were reluctant to let her go. Who would be so useful to them as Polly? Who undertake, without scorn, the education of the Whilom Shepherd's daughters? Still, they knew they had to lose her, and he couldn't see that it made things any easier for them to put off the evil day. No, there was something else at the bottom of it, though he didn't know what. Then one evening, pondering a letter of Polly's, he slapped his forehead, and exclaimed aloud at his own stupidity. "'That night, into his reply, he slipped four five-pound notes. "'Just to buy yourself any little thing you fancy, dearest. "'If I chose a gift, I might send what would not be acceptable to you.' "'Yes, sure enough, that was it. "'Little Polly had been in straits for money. "'The next news he heard was that she had bought and was stitching her wedding-gown. "'Taxed with her need, Polly guiltily admitted that her salary for the past three months was owing to her.' but there had been great expenses in connection with the hotel, and Mr. B. had had an accident to his leg. From what she wrote, though, Mahony saw that it was not the first time such remissness had occurred, and he felt grimly indignant with her employers. Keeping open house and hospitable to the point of vulgarity, they were, it was evident, pinch-fists when it came to parting with their money. Still in the case of a little woman who had served them so faithfully— in thought he set a thick black mark against their name, for their cavalier treatment of his Polly, and extended it to John Turnham as well. John had made no move to put hand to pocket, and Polly's niceness of feeling had stood in the way of her applying to him for aid. It made Mahony yearn to snatch the girl to him then and there, to set her free of all contact with such coarse-grained miserly brutes. Old Ocock negotiated the hire of a neat spring cart for him and a stout little cob, and at last the day had actually come when he could set out to bring Polly home. By his side was Ned Turnham. Ned, still a lean-jowled wages man at Rotten Gully, made no secret of his glee at getting carried down thus comfortably to Polly's nuptials. They drove the eternal forty-odd miles to Geelong, each stick and stone of which was fast becoming known to Mahony. A journey that remained equally tiresome whether the red earth rose as a thick red dust, or whether as now it had turned to a mud-like birdlime, in which the wheels sank almost to the axles. Arrived at Geelong, they put up at a hotel where Purdy awaited them. Purdy had tramped down from Tarangower, blanket on back, and stood in need of a new rig-out from head to foot. Otherwise his persistent ill-luck had left no mark on him. The ceremony took place early the following morning at the house of the Wesleyan minister, the Anglican parson having been called away. The Beamishes and Polly drove to town, a tight fit in a double buggy. On the back seat Jinny clung to and half supported a huge clothes basket, which contained the wedding breakfast. Polly sat on her trunk by the splashboard, and Tilly, crowded out, rode in on one of the cart horses, a coloured bed quilt pinned around her waist to protect her skirts. To Polly's disappointment, neither her brother John nor his wife was present. A letter came at the eleventh hour to say that Mrs. Emma was unwell, and her husband did not care to leave her. Enclosed, however, were ten pounds for the purchase of a wedding gift, and the pleasure Polly felt at being able to announce John's generosity helped to make up to her for his absence. The only other guest present was an elder sister, Miss Sarah Turnham, who, being out of a situation at the moment, had sailed down from Melbourne. This young lady, a sprightly brunette of some three or four and twenty, without the fine regular features of Ned and Polly, but with tenfold their vivacity and experience, caused quite a sensation, and Tilly's audible raptures at beholding her Purdy again were of short duration, for Purdy had never met the equal of Miss Sarah and could not take his eyes off her. He and she were the life of the party. The beamishes were overawed by the visitor's town bred airs and the genteel elegance of her dress, Polly was a mere crumpled rose-leaf of pink confusion, Marnie too preoccupied with ring and licence to take any but his formal share in the proceedings. "'Come and see you,' echoed Miss Sarah playfully. The knot was tied, the company had demolished the good things laid out by Mrs. Beamish in the private parlour of a hotel, and emptied a couple of bottles of champagne, and Polly had changed her muslin frock for a black silk travelling gown. "'Come and see you? Why, of course I will, little silly!' and with her pretty white hands she patted the already perfect bow of polly's bonnet-strings miss sarah had no great opinion of the match her sister was making but she had been agreeably surprised by mahony's person and manners and had said so thus filling polly's soul with bliss "'provided, of course, little Goosey, you have a spare room to offer me, for I confess,' she went on, turning to the rest of the party, "'I confess I feel inordinately curious to see, with my own eyes, what these famous diggings are like. From all one hears, they must be marvellously entertaining. Now, I presume that you, Mr. Smith, never touch at such rude, out-of-the-world places in the course of your travels.' purdy who had discreetly concealed the fact that he was but a poverty-stricken digger himself quibbled a light evasion then changed the subject and offered his escort to the steam packet by which miss sarah was returning to melbourne and you too dear tilly urged little polly proceeding with her farewells for mind you promised and i won't forget to you, you know what tilly sobbing noisily wept on polly's neck that she wished she was dead or at the bottom of the sea and Polly, torn between pride and pain at Purdy's delinquency, could only kiss her several times without speaking. The farewells buzzed and flew. Goodbye to you, little lass. Beg pardon, Mrs. Doctor Mahony. Mind you right, Poll. I shall die to ear. Ta ta, little silly goosey, and au revoir. Mind you don't pitch you out of the cart, Polly. Goodbye, Polly my duck. And remember, I'll come to you in a wink and hiff and when which speech on the part of mrs beamish distressed polly to the verge of tears but finally she was torn from their arms and hoisted into the cart and mahony the reins in his hand began to unstiffen from the wooden figurehead he had felt himself during the ceremony and under the whirring tongues and whispered confidences of the women and now polly for home he said exultantly when the largest pocket-handkerchief had shrunk to the size of a knit and polly had ceased to twist her neck for one last last glimpse of her friends and then the bush and the loneliness of the bush closed around them it was the time of flowers of fierce young growth after the fruitful winter rains the short-lived grass green now as that of an english meadow was picked out into patterns by the scarlet of the running postman purple sarsaparilla festooned the stems of the scrub there were vast natural paddocks here of yellow everlastings there of heaths in full bloom compared with the dark spindly foliage of the she-oaks the tea-tree's waxy flowers stood out like orange blossoms against firs on damp or marshy ground wattles were aflame great quivering masses of softest gold wherever these trees stood the fragrance of their yellow puffball blossoms saturated the air one knew, before one saw them, that they were coming, and long after they had been left behind one carried their honey's sweetness with one. Against them no other scent could have made itself felt. And to Mahony, these waves of perfume, into which they were continually running, came, in the course of the hours, to stand for a symbol of the golden future for which he and Polly were making. And whenever in after years he met with wattles in full bloom, he was carried back to the blue spring day of this wedding journey— and jogged on once more in the light cart with his girl-wife at his side. It was necessarily a silent drive. More rain had fallen during the night. Even the best bits of the road were worked into deep, glutinous ruts, and the low-lying parts were under water. Mahony, but a fairish hand with the reins, was repeatedly obliged to leave the track and take to the bush, where he steered away as best he could through trees, stumps, boulders, and crab-holes. Sometimes he rose to his feet to encourage the horse, or he alighted and pulled it by the bridle, or put a shoulder to the wheel. But to-day no difficulties had power to daunt him, and the further he advanced the lighter hearted he grew. He went back to Ballarat feeling for the first time that he was actually going home. And Polly, sitting motionless at her husband's side, her hands folded on her black silk lap, "'Polly obediently turned her head this way and that "'when Richard pointed out a landmark to her "'or called her attention to the flowers. "'At first things were new and arresting, "'but the novelty soon wore off, "'and as they went on and on and still on, "'it began to seem to Polly, "'who had never been further afield "'than a couple of miles north of the pivot city, "'as if they were driving away from all the rest of mankind, "'right into the very heart of nowhere.' The road grew rougher, too, became scored with ridges and furrows which threw them violently from side to side. Unused to bush driving, Polly was sure at each fresh jolt that this time the cart must tip over, and yet she preferred the track and its dangers to Richard's adventurous attempts to carve a passage through the scrub. A little later a cold south wind sprang up which struck through the thin silk mantle, She was very tired, having been on her feet since five o'clock that morning, and all the happy fuss and excitement of the wedding was behind her. Her heart sank. She loved Richard dearly. If he had asked her, she would have gone to the ends of the earth with him. But at this moment she felt both small and lonely, and she would have liked nothing better than Mrs. Beamish's big motherly bosom on which to lay her head. And when, in passing a swamp, a well-known noise broke on her ear— that of hundreds of bell-frogs, which were like hundreds of hissing tea-kettles just about to boil. Then such a rush of homesickness took her that she would have given all she had to know she was going back once more to the familiar little whitewashed room she had shared with Tilly and Jinny. The seat of the cart was slanting and slippery. Polly was continually sliding forward, now by inches, now with a great jerk. At last Mahony noticed it. You're not sitting very comfortably, Polly, I fear, he said. Polly righted herself yet again and reddened. It's-it's my feet aren't long enough, she replied. Oh, why, my poor little love, cried Mahony, full of quick compunction. Why didn't you say so? And drawing rein and getting down, he stuffed some of Mrs Beamish's bundles, fragments of the feast which the good woman had sent with them, under his wife's feet. "'stuffed too many so that Polly drove the rest of the way "'with her knees raised to a hump in front of her. "'All the afternoon they had been making for dim blue Ranges. "'After leaving the flats near Geelong, the track went up and down. gray green forests surrounded them, "'out of which knobbly hills rose like islands from a sea of trees. "'As they approached the end of their journey, "'they overtook a large number of heavy vehicles labouring along through the mire.' A coach with six horses dashed past them at full gallop and left them rapidly behind. Did they have to skirt bull-punchers who were lashing or otherwise ill-treating their teams? Mahony urged on the horse, and bade Polly shut her eyes. Night had fallen, and a drizzling rain set in by the time they travelled the last couple of miles to Ballarat. This was the worst of all, and Polly held her breath while the horse picked its way among yawning pits into which one false step would have plunged them. Her fears were not lessened by hearing that in several places the very road was undermined, and she was thankful when Richard, himself rendered uneasy by the precious cargo he bore, got out and walked at the horse's head. They drew up before a public-house. Cramped from sitting and numb with cold, Polly climbed stiffly down as bidden, and Mahony, having unloaded the baggage, mounted his seat again to drive the cart into the yard. This was a false move, as he was quick to see— he should not have left Polly standing alone. For the news of the arrival of Doc Mahony and his bride flew from mouth to mouth, and all the loafers who were in the bar turned out to stare and to quiz. Beside her tumulus of trunk, bag, bundle, little Polly stood desolate, with drooping shoulders, and cursing his want of foresight, Mahony all but drove into the gatepost, which occasioned a loud guffaw. Nor had long Jim turned up as ordered to shoulder the heavy luggage these blunders made Mahony very hot and curt. Having himself stowed the things inside the bar and borrowed a lantern, he drew his wife's arm through his and hurried her away. It was pitch dark, and the ground was wet and squelchy. Their feet sank in the mud. Polly clung to Richard's arm, trembling at the rude voices, the laughter, the brawling that issued from the grog shops at the continual apparition of rough-bearded men— one of these who held a candle stuck in a bottle was accosted by richard and soundly rated when they turned out of the street with its few dismal oil lamps their way led them among dirty tents and black pits and they had to depend for light on the lantern they carried they crossed a rickety little bridge over a flooded river then climbed a slope on which in her bunchy silk skirts polly slipped and floundered to stop before something that was half a tent and half a log hut this the end of the long long journey this the house she had to live in yes richard was speaking welcome home little wife not much of a place you see but the best i can give you it's it's very nice richard said polly staunchly but her lips trembled Warding off the attack of a big, fierce, dirty dog which sprang at her, dragging its paws down her dress, Polly waited while her husband undid the door, then followed him through a chaos which smelt as she had never believed any roofed-in place could smell, to a little room at the back. Mahony lighted the lamp that stood ready on the table, and threw a satisfied glance around. His men-folk had done well, things were in apple-pie order. The fire crackled, the kettle was on the boil, the cloth spread. He turned to polly to kiss her welcome to relieve her of bonnet and mantle but before he could do this there came a noise of rowdy voices of shouting and parleying picking up the lantern he ran out to see what the matter was left alone polly remained standing by the table on which an array of tins was set preserved salmon sardines condensed milk their tops forced back to show their contents her heart was heavy as lead "'and she felt a dull sense of injury as well. "'This hut, her home, "'to which she had so freely invited sister and friend. "'She would be ashamed for them ever to set eyes on it. "'Not in her worst dreams had she imagined it as mean and poor as this. "'But perhaps—' "'With the lamp in her hand she tiptoed guiltily to a door in the wall. "'It opened into a tiny bedroom with a sloping roof. "'No, this was all, all there was of it.' "'Just these two miserable little pokey rooms.' She raised her head and looked round, and the tears welled up in spite of herself. The roof was so low you could almost touch it. The window was no larger than a pocket-handkerchief. There were chinks between the slabs of the walls, and from one of these she now saw a spider crawl out, a huge black tarantula with horrible hairy legs. Polly was afraid of spiders, and at this the tears began to overflow and to trickle down her cheeks holding her skirts to her the new dress she had made with such pride now damp and crushed and soiled she sat down and put her feet in their soaked mud-cake little prunella boots on the rung of her chair for fear of other monsters that might be crawling the floor and then while she sat thus hunched together the voices outside were suddenly drowned in a deafening noise in a hideous stupefying din that nearly split one's eardrums It sounded as though all the tins and cans in the town were being beaten and banged before the door. Polly forgot the tarantula, forgot her bitter disappointment with her new home. Her black eyes wide with fear, her heart thudding in her chest, she sprang to her feet and stood ready, if need be, to defend herself. Where, oh, where, was Richard? It was the last straw— when some five minutes later Mahony came bustling in, he had soothed the kettle-drummers and sent them off with a handsome gratuity, and he carried the trunk on his own shoulder, long Jim following behind with bags and bundles. When he entered, he found little Polly sitting with her head huddled on her arms, crying as though her heart would break. End of Part 1 Chapter 9